Good day, friends. This is the B-side to the message, Ready, Set, Slow, from Deuteronomy chapters 1 through 4. In this episode, we further explore how to reflect. We have three parts. First, we will discover journaling, the how and the why of journaling. Second, we will explore how to listen to sermons. And third, praying backwards. As always, we will close with a preview of the upcoming passage, and we will open with a 60-second summary of Sunday's message, starting now. Ready, set, slow? Yes, Israel was ready, and they were set to go into the promised land, right on its border. But instead, Moses halts the action by delivering his final four sermons before dying. That's what the book of Deuteronomy is. In his first message, he takes three chapters to reflect on Israel's journey up to this point. We, with repetition and technology and the busyness of life, often don't take enough time to stop and go slow and reflect on things. Moses teaches us how to reflect, and in chapter 4 we see some of the benefits. First, reflection gives us wisdom. Second, reflection helps us to remember God. Third, reflection enables us to return to God. And fourth, reflection helps us to wonder, to have wonder about God. So, for us, we need to plan our lives, live our lives, then reflect on our lives and apply what we see in reflection. Perfect. Now, just to elaborate a little bit if you did not hear the message, the plan and live part. We plan our lives, and hopefully we're planning our lives according to God's plan, and then we live our lives. But unless we have that third step of reflection... We will never know if the planning and the living are in alignment. And when they're not in alignment, we spend a lot of time walking in circles as Israel had done for 40 years. But if I plan and live and then reflect, I can see, is my life lining up to God's plan? Is my life lining up to my priorities? Is it not? And then when I see that, I can make the appropriate applications, step four apply, make the appropriate applications for getting life in line. And then you repeat. That is the power of reflection. That's why we are going to talk now on the art of reflection. So, let us go now to part one. The how and why of journaling. And this is brought to you by my friend, Dane Bundy. Whenever I think of journaling, I think about the day I asked my wife to marry me. On that day, I handed her a black handwritten journal that I had been writing to her for a number of years. Now, my entries didn't begin with Dear Megan, but Dear Wife, as I knew God had set Megan aside for me, but I just didn't know her name yet. When Megan opened up her journal on our engagement, she found prayers, notes to her, and details of my days waiting for her to become my wife. Now, I've been handwriting in a journal for as long as I can remember at least 20 years. And while I've been more consistent in some seasons than others, journaling has always played an important role in my spiritual and intellectual journey. 
And so I can confidently say that journaling has become a habit, a habit that I find deep satisfaction from on a daily basis. Now, if you consider yourself a writer or an artist or an introvert or are just someone who likes to read, the odds are that you've dabbled in journaling at least once before. Some of you may not be daily journalers, and and that's okay. Some of you may have tried it, liked it, got discouraged. Uh, I journaled for 10 days straight, and it was great, and then I got too busy, and then I lost the journal. Maybe that's your story. (laughs) My goal here is, is not to guilt you or tell you my way is the only way to journal, but simply to share with you why and how I journal. And perhaps these reflections will stir you on to consider uh, this important discipline. I like to say that I journal for four reasons. To process, ponder, pray, and preserve. And so first, to process. I think back about my first journal. It was a Mickey Mouse-themed journal that I bought at Disney World when I was around 12. And I still have it somewhere. It's fun to go back and reread my entries about what we did on that day, what rides we conquered, and what cute girls I had crushes on from afar. And as a way to process what I did the day before or what I planned to do the next day, I journaled about it. And the same pattern has gone on for the last 20 years. When I look back on those years, I see that God's blessed me with many joyful and exciting days, from marrying my wife to packing my seven earthly belongings And moving to Kentucky. Strangely enough, writing about these events as they approached helped me prepare for them. Writing about them after they took place helped me understand their significance and how they were changing me. Now, of course, 20 years of journaling reveals that God has brought some storm clouds as well. And although I've sought to live this Christian drama faithfully, I've made many painful mistakes and received the brunt of others' painful mistakes. I've chronicled numerous seasons in which I feel confused and anxious about what just happened or what I'm supposed to do next. But of all my entries, I tend to return to the ones drenched from the storm. I find comfort there. Why? Well, I believe it's where God shows his kindness most clearly and my growth most dramatically. If you're human, you suffer. So I know my pain very well could be used to relieve someone else's. Capturing these seasons in writing or pictures prepares me to share God's comfort when the time comes. I also journal to pray. I always address my entries with Dear Father, though I'm not sure when I started doing this. These two words transform my daily reflections to prayers to my Heavenly Father. And I naturally follow the acronym ACTS, A-C-T-S, Adoration, Confession, Thanksgiving, and Supplication. I read it in a book, I believe, by Bill Hybels, and I haven't really deviated from it since. So when I write these prayers, what I find is that it helps me stay focused on the task, conversing with God. And when you write, you're forced to think through what you're going to say before you say it. The more permanent nature of writing, well, it compels me to choose my words and thoughts more carefully. Framing my journal entries as prayers also helps me when I'm beginning to process a painful or frustrating event. If I followed my ACTS pattern, A-C-T-S, by the time I get to asking God for help, I've already spent time praising Him for who He is. 
sovereign, loving, gracious, wise. I've confessed my sin to him, which swiftly reminds me that I have many areas in which I need to grow. I've thanked him for his expected and unexpected gifts, which already starts putting my discouragement in context. By the time I start asking God for something, I usually find my mindset my mindset has shifted. I'm not saying prayer immediately washes away the pain or the anger or confusion, but at the very least, I find myself better prepared to ask for what I need, which is often far different from what I want. So 20 years of entries reminds me that often what I need most are the storm clouds. Now, I also journal to ponder. My journal seems to function like a, like a landing zone for ideas, quotes, plans. And since I read often, I, I come across quotes that I don't want to forget. So I write them down in my journal. And the really life-changing, dramatic quotes I put in the front of my journal. And after I jot down the quotes, I'll often dissect them statement by statement or, or phrase by phrase, eventually making application to my life and calling. This dissection and application often takes a visual form. I'll, I'll draw stick figures, charts, story charts, wh- whatever helps me see and understand what's dancing in my head. And, you know, it's funny, while I was writing my master's thesis, I was trying to process a lot of complex ideas, and what I found the best way to do that was by illustrating them in my journal. And then I ended up just digitizing many of them and inserted them into the, to the thesis. And you know, lately, whenever an idea comes to mind, I'll draw a light bulb on one of the blank pages, and then I'll jot down my idea. So I can always go back through my journal and look at all the, the crazy ideas that I've had over the last couple of years. Just look for the light bulbs. Uh, this reminds me of another story. In February 2018, I had a light bulb moment when I had some family up to our home in Lake Arrowhead. Now, out of nowhere, a series of these images just like marched into my mind, demanding that I capture them right now, or maybe never. And so the only thing I could do was dash and dive to my journal. And for the next hour or so, uh, I wrote and doodled, wrote and doodled. And the end result was the how and why of stage and story, the ministry that I'm involved with. Uh, Another way that I ponder through my journal is using scripture. So in the Psalms, David writes, quote, but his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. And over the last 20 years, I've worked through much of the Old Testament, the New Testament, with my journal right next to me. And so if I'm working through a section of scripture, maybe three to five chapters, I'll write down the verses that just happen to stand out to me. Sometimes a meditation will look more like a formal Bible study, outlining the passage, you know, noting the themes, tracing the author's argument. Other times I'll simply write down how the passage points me to Christ, or reveals an area of sin, or just simply encourages me. Uh, lastly, I journal to preserve. Now, I've never faced a house fire, but if we ever do, I plan to grab these things, or some of them are not things, but I plan to grab my wife, the children, whether they are ours or not, and my journals. Now, at first this sounds awfully arrogant, and perhaps it is, but I think of it more like this. My journals are my story. I mean, what are we without our memories? 
My journals capture not only what I've done, pondered, dreamt, wrestled, but more significantly, what God has done. In me, my family, my particular church, the church as a whole, it is a perspective on God's drama. Albeit it is just one very narrow perspective from the stage, looking up and around at what our brilliant and wise dramatist director is doing and has been doing. My long-term plans for my journals, they're simple. Pass them on to my children, and hopefully their children's children. It's much less that my journals have, have captured my brilliant ideas, and much more that they have recorded glimpses of a loving and creative God at play with me. Come, I hope my journals say, what you're looking for is found in my friend and Lord, Jesus. So now I'd like to talk with you about four ways that you can start journaling. For some people, it's really hard to to just get started because it feels overwhelming. At the 2017 Stage and Story Conference, Wayne Scott, founder of Lifehouse Theater, gave a talk titled Tips on Creativity from the Author. He was speaking about spiritual growth at the moment when he actually touched on the discipline of journaling. Above all, he explained, if I could encourage you, keep a journal. How else are you going to measure your own growth if you don't look back and see what you were thinking and where you were in a certain time? And I totally agree. And that's why I'm a big fan and advocate of the discipline of journaling. And what I've learned is that there's no secret, patent, pending process to journaling. I've just found a way that works for me, and now it's a habit every day. So here are just a few tips on how you can get started and not stop. The first tip is really simple. You just got to start. Start today. One way to fail at journaling is to not start at all. I made that up. And one way to succeed is just to write. You got to write a lot. And I also made that up. (laughs) So your writing just doesn't have to be composed of published plays or polished essays. It's just, just words or pictures on a paper, in a Google Doc, on a voice memo, or in your notes app on your phone. Truthfully, many things have kept me from writing. I've wasted so many hours agonizing over whether or not I was a writer. Do I have the necessary talent? Will I make an impact? Is God calling me to be a writer? You know, now I just see that those hours could have been spent on, you got it, writing. And so the best way to answer those questions, which I think are important questions, is just to begin writing. Over 30 years of creative endeavors, Wayne Scott, he, boy, founder of Lifehouse Theater, he understands the many obstacles to producing a creative work. And here's one thing that he told us at the conference. He said, I want you to, I want to challenge you. Uh, Those of you who may be waiting for some airy, wispy future, and you just need to do it. You just need to sit down and stop making excuses. He said, and this is what stuck with me, talent without discipline is worthless. Boom. I'm motivated. And hopefully this motivates you as well. So here are a couple easy steps to get started. First, you're going to want to find a time when you think the clearest. For me, it's the morning. 
well, you know, I can write in the afternoon or evening, but for it to be of quality, I would need a miracle of mosaic proportions. Otherwise, I just end up rewriting it in the morning. So, mornings are my time. Then, you're going to want to find a place that inspires you. For me, it's my office or the rock overlook nearby or the busy coffee shop. And then you just got to plan to start. Now, the right location actually matters less to me than the right time. But if I'm constantly interrupted, I, I really find it. I find writing difficult. Now, now that you've walked through these couple of steps, let's talk about your first day. I found I sound like uh, Dr. Phil. Uh, on day one, you got to give yourself the gift. Give yourself a gift. And you got to set yourself up for success. Don't plan to write the next award-winning essay or New York Times bestseller. Please, let's set our expectations a little bit lower. you got to plan to write about a recent event or write a few observations about a scriptural passage or just an intriguing quote. Oh my goodness, I have psyched myself out with thinking my piece must be great or mind-blowing or the piece will make me the next Tolkien or Lewis or Amy Sherman Palladino. Yeah, she wasn't really. She wrote Gilmore Girls, so I'm okay with not being her. Now, don't even plan to write a lengthy passage, unless you're dying to. Start with one paragraph or a few bullet-pointed statements or even some drawings. Then make a plan to write tomorrow's entry. And then tomorrow, commit to writing another. Next, I say you got to stick with the same tools. Right, so every craftsman has his favorite tools, so do writers. Now, please, don't put writing on hold until you find the right pen and right journal. You'll never start. But it's important to find tools that work best for you. And it's helped me. And finding the right pen and right journal has actually helped make journaling a daily habit. And the reason is because I don't have to spend any time thinking about what pen or paper I'll use today. Because I only stock a certain kind of pen and journal. Now, just a little warning. The following is going to sound both a little snobby and nerdy. Now, I didn't intend to sound snobby, and I, uh, I'm i okay with being nerdy because I do wear sweater vests, and I own many of them. On a daily basis, here we go. You ready? On a daily basis, I write with a Pilot G207 black gel pen. Kind of sounds like an airplane. And I throw all other pens in the trash or off a cliff. Not really. But they don't touch my journal. I also buy my G2 pens in bulk or put them on my Christmas list so others can. And I only write in a Scripta Notes large ruled 192 page ruled and blank pages journal. Over the years, I've selected this particular journal because it's high quality, has a hard cover, and has a ruled page on one side and a blank page on the other. Now, I use the ruled side for my entries and the blank side to illustrate ideas, capture quotes. Now, at seminary, at seminary, sorry, at seminary, that was another part of my life. At seminary, there were many sweater vest wearing, ink pen carrying, MDiv pursuing, Apple Watch wearing journalers who really liked the moleskin journal. And I only have one word for them. That's fine. But for those who journal digitally, using a iPersonal computer or iTablet or iDevice, I only have one word for you. You are out of bounds. Turn from your ways. Next, you got to stash your journal with you. 
There's nothing worse than having a great idea and nowhere to write it down. I find that ideas for plays or blogs or future projects will come upon me during the strangest times. Driving, running, showering, watching a movie, listening to a sermon, fixing my car's transmission, lumbering trees, and yes, I could do those latter two if I wanted. You know, sometimes inspiration just comes, dances a moment, and then wisps away. If you're not ready, you'll miss the idea or image or story along with the Emmy. So my solution to this is simple. Always keep your journal and pen with you. When I'm home, I keep the journal on my shelf. And when I'm on the road, in my manly man bag. If the dove of inspiration comes while I'm driving, I'll just pull over. If I'm showering, I'll dry off. If I'm building things, I set down my wrench and chainsaw. If I'm running, I just keep running but toward my journal. Now, my recommendation is you got to keep your journal and pen in the same place during the week. You'll be amazed at how this little choice will help turn your journaling into a habit. That's a guarantee. Not really, but it probably will happen. And then you got to store it in a safe place. This is my final point. Now, I don't like horror stories, but when you live through one, you must share it. One time I left my journal at church, a church we were visiting. It was agony. I'm sorry, not the church, but forgetting my journal. For a couple days, I missed countless opportunities to reflect and plan. The world could have been such a better place. See, I envisioned the pastor or a deacon or a youth discovering my journal, peering into the state of my heart and mind, uh, reading my prayers, mocking my doodles. I have a pretty vivid imagination. But it was like they had my right arm or my spleen Something was definitely missing. It eventually became too much, so I drove back to the church and I took it back. Thank you, I said. I need that to function. Okay, so my last point is simple. If you're going to invest your spiritual, emotional, and intellectual growth into a journal, which you should, don't lose it. Do whatever it takes to not lose it. Just don't do it. Don't lose it. Don't lose it at all. (laughs) So... Those are just some of my tips on how I journal and uh, and why I journal. And I'm hoping as you're thinking through the reflection process that some of this could help you journal as well. Happy writing. Part two, listening to sermons. In the message, one of the ways we said that you can reflect is by listening to sermons. Because it would be a myth not to mention it, Moses was giving the people a sermon while we were talking about reflecting. (laughs) So sermons actually provide a very good way to reflect on life. um, Because they bring in another person's perspective. Most importantly, God's. We can reflect on ourselves But sometimes to see ourselves from God's perspective brings the ultimate reflection. And sermons are not always our first choice. Um, Sometimes we can think of 40 to 60 minutes of other things to do. And often we're thinking of those things to do while we're in the middle of a sermon. Totally get that. But they cause us to sit still for a moment 
And generally, if you're polite, you don't have your phone out or any other distraction and you're there. You're present for a moment. And what's really great is God's word comes to you and your history comes into the room. And if you're willing, they can collide. And in that connection, we can see life from God's perspective. And we can then make reflections on how are we doing with our planning and with our living and what applications should I make in order to better align my life with God's plan. So I want to share some thoughts about listening to a sermon. It's kind of ironic because I don't actually get to listen to a lot. I'm usually giving them. But in a sense, these are what I would want my hearers to do. Uh, so please note, I'm not critiquing what a sermon should be or how to give a good one. That's not the purpose of this. It's how to listen to one. So in no particular order, number one, messages have a main point. So don't trip over the details. Sometimes the way a point is made, uh, there's like one or two words in there that really ruffled someone's feathers and they miss the entire point. Those two words that ruffled your feathers was not what was being communicated. They were parts of a larger uh, thing that you were supposed to get, like bricks in a building. You're complaining that this brick is chipped, but you're missing the fact that it's actually not about the brick. It's about the building, and it's a building that's to be entered. So, uh, yeah, sometimes there might be those things you're like, I don't know. But just remember that often a teacher, a speaker, a preacher is trying to make a single point and everything else is really trying to support it and get your mind to see it in different ways or get you to it. So try not to trip up over the fine details. Now, obviously, if there's something seriously troubling, then talk to somebody, maybe even the preacher himself. Uh, second, sermons are more about invitation than they are about information. Now, this is where we can get a little bit nuanced. Um, what's a sermon? What's a teaching? What's a message? Yeah, I may define each of those differently, but here's what I want to say. There are two components when it comes to relaying the Bible. There's teaching and preaching. And though they're often used interchangeably, I see them like this. Teaching is information. Teachings where you're trying to make connections for people between their world and what the Bible says. You're just showing them, here's what this is, and then they, if the teacher's doing a job, they're starting to see the connections all over the place. So teaching's throwing it out there, and the listener is supposed to be picking it up and putting it into their life. Preaching is invitation. Preaching says, this is what God's doing. It's pointing at him and saying, let's participate. Let's join in. Preaching is pulling back the curtain and saying, this is what's going on. Or it's opening the door and inviting us to come on in. It's asking us to take a step somewhere. It's calling us to be something or to do something or to think a certain way or to change something. So uh, sometimes we hear people say, I didn't get anything out of that message. Now, that can literally be true. But that's also generally an information-oriented way of listening. Did the message invite you to something? You may not have learned anything, but it may have awakened you to something else that you hadn't been doing. Sometimes making messages all about information is a convenient way of overlooking our need for transformation. Third, dialogue. What? Yeah, dialogue. Not with 
the teacher himself, that would obviously be rude and distracting, unless you're in a much smaller setting. Um, dialogue with yourself. Interact with yourself. Where are you in this message? I think we often hear a message objectively. We think about the speaker and his words and how they relate to everyone else. I feel like we don't always put ourselves in there and think about what's being said subjectively, putting ourselves underneath it and thinking about what does this mean for me? So you can have a literal dialogue with yourself in which you're constantly bouncing the things you're seeing and hearing in the scripture with your own life. Fourth, notice what stands out. Sometimes you find something interesting. Sometimes something gives you a real reaction, like in the gut. Sometimes something makes you turn your head or listen a little closer. Something makes you laugh. Something makes you sad. Something may recall a memory from the past. Pay attention. Notice these things that are happening. I guess this is sort of a sub-point to the dialogue. Um, pay attention. Notice it. So when something stands out, what am I to do? Or should I go back and reread this passage later that night? Um, is this calling me to do some further study on my own? Is this exposing something in my life? Some darkness, some sin? Is this confirming something that I'm doing right, that I'm on the right path? Yeah, there's all kinds of interactions that can be happening. So notice them and follow up on them. Fifth, accept that some messages are time bombs. Yeah, not every message is going to hit you right when you hear it. Some are subtle. They're subversive. They creep up on you later. They just kind of linger in your heart and in your mind, just somewhere on the periphery, and suddenly something happens and it comes caving in and saying, now you get it. So it's not always fair to say, well, that wasn't worth my time or that didn't speak to me because it may not speak to you yet. You may not be there yet, or it may not be where you are yet and it's catching up. Sometimes the words that God is speaking are not always intersecting with our life at the moment, but somewhere, hopefully soon, it will. Um, I don't know why, but I just have the image of a toaster in my mind for this. You know, you can take a slice of bread and you can get it hot real quick by putting it in the microwave. But it's not technically toast. It hasn't actually given it the nice golden brown edges. And it's just still a slice of bread that's just warm. But if you put it in a toaster, it gets nice and golden. There's a little crunch with some softness still in the middle. And it smells great. That's how, that's how it should be. Um, but sometimes I think we treat a message like a microwave. And we immediately say, eh, good or bad, or eh, didn't really do anything. And we kind of just move on. But a toaster, the sermon is just getting the button started. And over time, it's going to start baking and doing something and getting you to that nice golden texture. And later you might be, yeah, that had more crunch, more bite than I had originally expected. I couldn't couldn't resist that, sorry. Uh, Six, notes. I am uh, on the fence about notes. Some people are huge note takers and they they evaluate the message by how many pages of notes they took. Some are not note takers whatsoever. Um, I have pros and cons about them. Pros to note taking, 
it sticks with you. It really does. Writing down what you're hearing and then writing down your own thought alongside of it, uh, that can be a great practice of reflection. And note takers are more likely to retain what they hear. Uh, it also keeps you engaged. Some people's minds wander, but note takers rarely wander. Cons, personally, I feel like you can lose the impact of the preached word. There's something that's meant to be experienced and heard in live time. And sometimes notes can pull us out of what's going on. And we're going back and forth, back and forth. Um, sometimes there's handouts, right? Um, they give you point one, point two, and you fill in the blank. I understand those are great teaching techniques, but I feel like they're anticlimactic. You already know where it's going. It's predictable. Everything's fitting in three neat little categories. Sometimes they start with the same letter and you can pace, okay, one more blank to fill in and we're done. I just feel like it takes away from the emotional impact of a live message. Uh, so yeah, there's pros and cons to notes. I guess what you can say with that is take notes for teaching when you're hearing good information you don't want to lose or miss. Um, but when there's preaching, just absorb it and listen. God is moving on your heart. Write that down later. Seven, be open but watchful. This one will be different depending on people's levels of maturity. But I actually learn a ton from people I have very little in common with or agree with. And that's not to say that they're changing my mind on things, and that's why I'm learning a lot. Rather, I love hearing things put differently than the old cliche or the way I've heard it a thousand times. When I've given a good listen to people I don't share a lot in common with, I've realized that actually we see things very similarly. We're just saying them very differently. And um, so I try to be open when I listen to people. Sometimes um, you can be like, well, I mean, I know that they are of this denomination or uh, I uh, know this background about them. And that can actually, for me at least, it, it can close my heart off to the fact that they have anything worthwhile to say. <laughs> Just because somebody has one view that's different than yours doesn't mean that everything they say is wrong. Know the difference. And golly, our churches would be healthier, our country would be healthier if we realized that we don't have to be of the exact same tribe to benefit from one another. So that's why I say be open, but be watchful. (laughs) This is not the have an open mind that everything spills out kind of saying. This is, yeah, Maybe there's something you disagree with, and maybe it's a big deal. Well, then, you know what? Yeah, have your boundaries. Uh, be open, but be watchful. Maybe there's something I can learn from this person, but there are definitely things that I don't want to learn from them and things that I am not going to tolerate. So there you have it. Be open, be watchful. I just don't want us to close our hearts to what God might say. And if he talked through a donkey to Balaam, well, who am I to say he's not going to talk through this human? Eight, pray it in. So many times a message ends with the amen and it was just the preacher praying and the people are just waiting and then we get up and we go off to what we're doing. 
Man, what a waste of sitting in that message. You got up and left it right there in the seat. That's one of the things I love about our fellowship is how we take communion after the message. We have a an extended moment to reflect on the message and to pray it into our lives and to seal it with communion with Jesus. So, um, yeah, try not to, uh, just up and go, but let it stay with you. Pray it into your life, which leads us to number nine. Take it with you. Take a word or a verse with you. It might be a word said in the message. Just for some reason, this word I found intriguing or this word stuck out or that just seems like the word I need. And take that word with you and uh, just remind yourself of that word. Mull over that word once again. Or a verse. It might have been a verse in the text or a word in the verse in the text. Take that with you. Keep it with you throughout the week. Yeah, you're never going to remember entire messages. That's not the point anyways. You're, But you do want to remember the impact. And so you can take that word or that verse and carry that with you through the week. A footnote, speaking about remembering messages, people always talk about how, yeah, well, I'm kind of done listening to sermons because I never remember them. Okay. I'm not sure what I had for lunch 17 days ago. Should I just have avoided eating my lunch? (laughs) You see the irony there, don't you? Just because we don't remember doesn't mean that it isn't doing something. Which leads me to another thought. Sometimes we get caught up on remembering the details. What did you learn? I learned this. We want to have that statement to say. That's not always the point either. What did you experience is a better question. What did God stir up? You may not even have an answer like he did this. Like It's not always something's accomplished when you leave a church service. Often something is begun and you don't have words for it yet. And that's why we're talking about reflection because the words will come. And that's why we don't want to be so oriented around remembering it or what I get out of it. But um, realizing that somewhere in my soul, if I was listening, a window was opened and I now see a little differently or I see God bigger, or I see my my role in this story differently, or the context is opened up. All these things, or like the time bomb, might come, it might it might dawn on you a bit later. Nonetheless, um, those are some of my thoughts on listening to a sermon so that you can reflect. Part three. Praying backwards. In addition to listening to sermons, I also mentioned in the message that we can reflect by praying backwards. We often pray forward. We're looking forward to things and asking for God's help or for his provision. But praying backward is when we look backward in our life and pray through what has happened with God. Now, you may or may not have heard of this before. Um, it's typically called by a Latin word, examine, which in English is examine, <laughs> examination. The prayer is meant to examine our lives with God. As Psalm 139 verses 23 to 24 say, Search me, O God, 
and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts and see if there be any grievous way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. So praying backwards or the examine is about asking God to search us and know our heart. But here's the tricky thing is that often it's easier to be examined when we look at what has already happened because the evidence is right there before us. Or to use a biblical example, uh, sometimes God is easiest to be seen. Sometimes we can see God easiest in retrospect. I may not always know where God is in the moment. I may have no clue how he's going to work in the future. But I can look backward on my life and see that is where he was. Recall how God revealed himself to Moses in Exodus 33 when Moses asked to see God's glory. And God replied, I will make my goodness pass before you, but you cannot see my face. So in verse 21, the Lord said, behold, there is a place by me where you shall stand on the rock, and while my glory passes by, I will put you in the cleft of the rock, and I will cover you with my hand until I have passed by. Then I will take my hand away, and you shall see my back, but my face shall not be seen. So when Moses sees God, notice that he sees God's backside. He does not see God face to face in the present moment. He sees where God had been. And that is so true for us. We very rarely have a good sense of what exactly is going on in the present. But when we look backward, we can say, wow, God provided for me there. He was encouraging me here. He spoke through me at that moment. He led me to that situation. So that's what praying backward is all about. So how do you do it? Well, you pick a time point. You can go back as far as you want. It can be your entire life, or it can be the last day, or the last few hours. And what you do is you replay the events with God. How does he see them? What is he going to show you about them? Where was he in these things? And typically there are five things you're doing during this time. First, you're noticing and recalling gratitude. Anything at all that is worth giving thanks for, do it. So often we miss gratitude. And don't just, oh, I am happy, I am thankful for this, I'm grateful for that, blah, blah, blah. Um, linger on those moments. Relive the moments. See them in your prayer. Be grateful by lingering on the smile of your lover, the laughter of your children, the joy you felt when you saw the beautiful sun slanting across that gorgeous landscape or the way someone complimented you, whatever it is. Feel it. Relive it. Practice that gratitude. Um, so second, review. You're reviewing your day or your that time period from start to finish. You don't have to <laughs> review it in live time. Obviously, that was not practical. But you're kind of scanning over the events. And some of them, you're just going over for a moment. Like, nothing's sticking out. 
Oh, God's not showing me anything there. Wait, wait, wait. That person bothered me. Why? And then you can go into it and kind of visit it with God. So gratitude review. Review. Third, sorrow. So while you're going through your review, um, notice anything that makes you sorry. Is there anywhere you failed? Um, this is things that we have done that are wrong. But also look for the things you didn't do that you perhaps should have or could have. So many things we miss because we're so wrapped up in ourselves. But praying backward, the examine, reviewing this time period, can show us those things we otherwise had missed. Fourth thing we do is forgiveness. So these things come up, ask God for forgiveness. As you're looking at it, say, yeah, I'm sorry for that. He's not upset. But it feels good just to acknowledge that he is right. And we could have done better there. And then fifth, finally, in response to the forgiveness, grace. We ask God for grace or help or power to do it correctly the next time. To not yell at the person, but to speak with a gentler voice. To not overlook the person as a waste of time who asked for our help, but to stop what we're doing and to help them. Things like that. That is a a brief rundown of how praying backwards works. Um, Hope that you find that somewhat helpful. I, by the way, enjoy doing this one, and I enjoy doing it with a journal, so I can write down some insights and observations. I don't get to do it every day, unfortunately, but I I really do enjoy when I get to. And I like to just um, write down a couple bullet points, things that stuck out to me, things I want to remember from the prayer session. And then, of course, this is not meant to replace any other praying you do. It's just another great way to pray and a great way to practice reflection. And now for our preview of this Sunday's passage, Deuteronomy chapters 5 through 26. Yep, 22 chapters. My goodness. Now, you might wonder, Brandon, why are you covering that much ground? The answer is simple. Because Moses did. You might remember that we've broken Deuteronomy up into his four sermons. Chapters 5 through 26 is sermon 2. Compare that to his first sermon, which is chapters 1 through 4. So if you're wondering why I did that, that's why. But it still doesn't help me because I'm still wondering why, as it's taking me forever to get through these chapters. Um, So if you're actually going to read through them all, way to go. If you're not, or you just want to selectively read. Well, here's your preview. Here's here's what is in this passage. Okay, so I went through the 26, um, 5 through 26, and I jotted down the main theme of each one. So here you go. Chapter 5, the Ten Commandments. Chapter 6, love God. Chapter 7, destroy the idolatrous culture that you inherit. Chapter 8, Don't forget God in your prosperity. Chapter 9, a genealogy of grace. 
I have to pause because I just love that. A genealogy of grace. He's talking about all the times that they were, uh, they've messed up, yet God still chose them. And it wasn't because of their righteousness that he chose them. So it's just like this genealogy of failure, but God's continuing to say, hey, but I chose you, but I chose you. That's why you're getting the promised land. Not because you're great, because I chose you. Chapter 10, circumcise your heart. And so this is where um, we get a little more New Testament-ish, where Paul in Romans 2 talks about how, look, a Jew is not a Jew, a true Jew, just because he's circumcised physically. It was always about the heart. It was about is about cutting off the parts of the heart that are holding us back from God. That's what true circumcision is. And Moses was saying this thousands of years before Paul. Circumcise your heart. Chapter 11. Obedience leads to the promised land. You want to get to the promised land of your own life? We need to be obedient. Obedience is not about winning awards or stickers or getting to heaven. Obedience is about discovering the best that God can give you. Chapter 12, the idolatry of individuality. (laughs) If that sounds interesting, go read it. Chapter 13, false prophets. Let's just say they weren't dealt with kindly. Chapter 14, food laws. We're back from Leviticus. Yep, the food menu returns and tithes. Chapter 15, slaves liberated every seven years. Which, by the way, was a beautiful system Israel had. That if you fell into debt or couldn't make ends meet, you didn't have to go beg on the street. Slavery was an institution that Israel used to help people who were down on their luck. And yet it wasn't technically slavery because every seven years, the slaves were set free. Now, they had a choice to stay if they wanted but they were given the out. Chapter 16, pilgrimage. The three festivals in which Israel would make pilgrimage to Jerusalem, those are mentioned there. So they're the big, the three big festivals of the seven. Chapter 17, laws. Chapter 18, laws. However, there's a portion in chapter 18 where it talks about the New prophet to come, a prophet like Moses, Jesus, anybody, Jesus, the new Moses leading us to the new promised land. Yes. Chapter 19, laws. Chapter 20, laws. Although at the end of chapter 20, it has some comments about warfare, which are interesting, in which God shows his care for his creation. He doesn't see his creation just as a bunch of matter that happens to be there. He cares for it. He doesn't want Israel to chop down every tree when they build their siege ramps to attack cities. Leave the trees alone. He doesn't want his creation to be the victims of our wars. Chapter 21, laws. Although there's an interesting part in the middle of it in which it talks about cursed is the one who is hung on a tree, which Paul cites in Galatians chapter 3 in connection to Jesus hung on a tree, on a cross, who became a curse for us so that we could inherit the blessings of the Abrahamic promise. Good stuff. Chapter 22, laws, all revolving mostly around sexuality. Chapter 23, laws, although there's one interesting insight where God tells Israel, if they're going to go use the 
outdoor restroom to bring a shovel. <laughs> Common sense, right? Well, it then says, for the Lord your God walks in the midst of the camp. Oh, if that isn't good, you parents, you got to use that. Chapter 24, laws. And there's a little portion on divorce. Chapter 25, laws. And then chapter 26, he ends with tithes. Really interesting. It's like Moses begins this sermon in chapter 5 in the Ten Commandments. He begins with the greatest hits. And from our perspective, gradually deteriorates into laws, 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 laws. Now that I'm done, we will take an offering. (laughs) Yeah, so chapter 17 through 25 is predominantly laws. And I just say laws because a lot of these just don't have much application for us. They're the Old Covenant. They're the Old Testament laws. There's some interesting things in there, some insights into the heart of God. But the real hits are chapters 5 through 16, where there's some real good meaty substance. And some of it is unique to Deuteronomy. So um, if you don't mind, I would like to hit on a little bit of those. One primarily being that, yes, it's a long sermon Um, But it's good stuff here in Deuteronomy. This Jesus cites when he's in the wilderness for not 40 years, but 40 days, battling the devil. He's tempted three times. And three times he quotes from Deuteronomy. Man shall not live by bread alone. That's Deuteronomy 8 verse 3. You shall not put the Lord your God to the test. That's Deuteronomy 6, verse 16. And you shall worship the Lord your God, and him alone shall you serve. That's Deuteronomy 6, verse 13. What is interesting is not only does Jesus cite scripture in his spiritual warfare. That's good for us to do, to know the scriptures so that we know where we stand in warfare. But he's quoting from specific passages with specific contexts. Man should not live by bread alone. Manna. Israel learned that because of manna. Should not put the Lord your God to the test. That was said due to the whole grumbling about water at Massah. And you shall worship the Lord your God and him alone shall you serve. Well, think. Golden calf. Uh, the idolatry God's warning them about as they entered into the promised land. Yeah, this all has context. And more importantly is that these contexts were Israel in the wilderness. Jesus cites passages from their story in his experience in the wilderness with the devil. You see what's coming together here is that Jesus is the new Moses. Jesus went into the wilderness for us where his people once failed In these three tests in the wilderness, Jesus succeeds in these three tests so that he can now lead us out of the wilderness. Yes, if we want the promised land today, if we want to get out of the wilderness, Jesus is the one to follow. He is the tabernacle holding the presence of God. He's the cloud going forward. He's Moses teaching us and instructing us. Jesus will get us where we need to be. In the Ten Commandments, in chapter 5, you may want to open up Exodus 20 and compare. Now, they're the same Ten Commandments, but there's some slight uh, differences in emphasis 
especially in the commandment on the Sabbath day. So you might want to look at that. Chapter 6, Jesus cites this as the most important law. Chapter 6, verse 4. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. That, Jesus told the lawyer who asked him which is the greatest commandment, is the entirety of the law. Now, yes, he did add, and love your neighbor as yourself. But that really is an extension of loving God. Because as the Apostle John tells us in 1 John, that if we do not love our brothers and sisters, then we do not love God. That command to love the Lord your God is so important. It, we even in English know of it in its Hebrew name, the great Shema. Shema means here. It's the first word of the command. And to this day, Jews will, uh, they'll, they will actually put this command on a little scroll and, and put it to their doorpost so that they're walking in and out, uh, reminding themselves that God is one and we love him with all our heart, with all our soul and with all our might. And so this, my friends, if it was big to Moses, if it's big to Jesus, it needs to be big to us. And yeah, we all know, love God, love God. But have we thought through loving God through all those components of life, our heart, soul, and might? Are we just adding God to the top of a list of loves, or is he the love? This doesn't mean God is the only thing in your life. It just means we learn to love others. We learn to love our hobbies. We learn to love the world around us through him. He becomes the center, the gravity from which everything else orbits. We get in trouble. Idolatry happens when other things become the center of gravity. And then we orbit around it and God orbits around it. Love the Lord, your God. So as you can see, there's a lot of good stuff in here. Um, I actually think I have an idea what I'm doing. <laughs> it's comforting, right? Uh, so last week, the title was Ready, Set, Slow. This passage, we're going to title it, unless something changes, Ready, Set, Grow. I see in these chapters Moses' heart to grow up this generation, to be ready to inherit the promised land, that they have grown into it, that they are mature enough to handle the idolatry that they're about to walk into. So um, we're going to highlight some of the areas of these, this reading that encourages us to grow. Hope you enjoy your time with Jesus, your time in the Word. And I look forward to teaching you on Sunday.